You're listening to the Baptist Bulletin Podcast, a program dedicated to advocating for a biblical worldview by encouraging Christian growth and ministry from a biblical perspective. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Baptist Bulletin Podcast. I'm David Gunn and I'm joined today by Dr. Andy Woods. Andy Woods is pastor of Sugarland Bible Church in Sugarland, Texas, and he also serves as president of Chafer Theological Seminary. Andy earned a Bachelor of Arts from the University of the Redland, a law degree from Whittier Law School, and took both a THM and a PhD from Dallas Theological Seminary. He's widely regarded as an expert in biblical prophecy, and he's authored numerous books on the subject. Most expressly of interest to us today is his recent book, The Coming Kingdom. What is the kingdom and how is kingdom now theology changing the focus of the church? Andy, welcome to the program. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I thought we'd just take a little bit of time in this episode and discuss the kingdom. What's it going to be like? Why is it important that we understand what the Bible teaches about the kingdom? And so your book is, in my opinion, the most robust, thoroughly researched book on the nature of the kingdom, probably that I've ever read, certainly since McLean's book, The Greatness of the Kingdom. Uh, and, and as I understand it, you're, you're not just presenting an argument for the timing or the duration of the kingdom. Sometimes people act like those of us that are into pre-mill or pre-trib eschatology, oh, you guys just want to argue about timing. But that's, that's not the crux of the matter. You're also making an argument about the character of the kingdom, what it's going to be like. So uh, obviously the best thing people could do to, to get acquainted with your views on the subject would be to read the book. But uh, in the meantime, maybe you could just give us a quick overview of, of what the kingdom will look like, uh, why, why you argue for this dispensational premillennial view of the kingdom, and uh, kind of why it's important. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the book has three parts. Uh, part one is what you were just talking about. What does the Bible say about the kingdom? And there I'm trying to argue that the kingdom, it, when you start with, actually the doctrine of the kingdom starts in Genesis 1, uh, where God the Father is ruling over the first Adam alongside his wife Eve, and the two of them are governing creation on God the Father's behalf. And that all got subverted in Genesis 3 when our forebears started listening to the animals, in particular a talking snake and rebelling against God. That was a bad idea. Bad idea, and the the kingdom is lost to the earth at that point, the way I'm defining it, the theocratic kingdom. i got to be careful because when you talk about a postponed kingdom, people say, well, you don't believe in God's sovereignty. No, there's always a universal kingdom, always. I'm talking here about a theocracy. Theocracy is is mediatorial kingdom. Mediatorial, yeah, excellent. And then the story of the Bible is how that gets restored. And that starts to get progressively revealed through the covenants. And, you know, you get up to the law of Moses, and you, you, you've you had unconditional covenants up to sure. this point in time. Suddenly it's conditioned upon Israel's response. And then you get into the times of the Gentiles, where we learn that uh, the nation of Israel is going to go through a difficult time of being trampled down by various Gentile powers with no reigning king on David's throne. And you start to learn about a postponed kingdom. Uh, and... But there's still hope because the prophets anticipate that the kingdom will come one day. It's always earthly. Uh, It's always involving uh, a restored Jerusalem, uh, peace in the animal kingdom, 
peace amongst the nations and so forth, and how God's program in history is to bring back essentially what was lost in Eden. Paradise lost, paradise restored. First Adam, second Adam. So God the Father will rule over the last Adam, Jesus Christ, and he will rule over the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. And that's why God can't allow this earth to go out of existence until that structure is restored. Because God has to win. Sure. Uh, he's got to restore what was lost. So that's what I'm trying to do in part one. Right. And part of that is an explanation that the church currently is not the kingdom. You know, we're, we're the sons of the kingdom. We're inheritors of the kingdom. We're winning souls for the coming kingdom. But that structure that we're talking about won't be ushered in until you have a repentant Israel in the tribulation. And then part two of the book is, well, what about that passage or this passage? Mm. You know, uh, Jesus said the kingdom of God is in your midst. What did he mean by that? Those kind of problem passages. And then part three is, so what? Why does it matter? And really the bottom line, I give a lot of reasons, but really the bottom line in part three is if the church gets confused on this, it becomes confused as to her earthly mission. So anyway, that's kind of a quick layout of the book. Great. So, so what would you see as the maybe the top one or two reasons to adopt this view of the kingdom as opposed to, say, an amillennial view as just a spiritual reign of Christ in our hearts mm-hmm. or a post-millennial view that there's a golden age, but uh, it's not a literal geopolitical, earthly, national, mm-hmm. uh, Jerusalem-centered uh, view of the kingdom? Probably the main reason is my view of progressive revelation, meaning... Earlier revelation in God's word can articulate something. And as the Bible unfolds, it can never subtract or really change what was originally said. It could add details, it could add clarity, but it can't outright change it. Because to my mind, if all of a sudden God says in the New Testament, just fooling, all that (laughs) stuff uh, I was talking about, I really meant something else by it. To me, that's goes to the character of God. He's, he's telling fibs, if not outright lies, to the original audience. Sure. And you see the amillennialists, you know, who we still accept as Christians. Oh, absolutely. Um, they have a hermeneutic, and they'll, they'll be very overt about it. You know, Kim uh, Riddlebarger in his book, A Case for Amillennialism, just comes right out and says this, as do countless others. But they think the New Testament changes the Old Testament. And so they think all the promises kind of get repackaged into a spiritual concept. Like, for example, Ezekiel 47 talks about a river flowing out of uh, Jerusalem into the Dead Sea. I was just there at the Dead Sea. Everything there is dead. (laughs) That's why it gets the name Dead Sea. But everything's going to come back to life. And they'll say, well, that's just regeneration. Well, no, that's that's not what it says. And so if God means what he says... And says what he means, there has to be a time in history where that promise is fulfilled. And we have an answer to that. We put it in the thousand-year reign of Christ. The amillennialist comes along and says, well, th- th- that really doesn't mean what you think it says because it got changed. Sure. So my view on it really comes from a view of progressive revelation that God can't rewrite what he said earlier. And those key texts I imagine that you're referring to in the Old Testament would be the unconditional covenants, Abrahamic covenant, Mm -hmm. Davidic covenant, uh, and so on, where you have 
clearly earthly promises to Israel. Is that's the way the original audience would have understood it. Yep. And that gets developed into this doctrine of a coming kingdom that Daniel writes about. Mm-hmm. That to one extent or another, uh, all of the, the writing prophets were looking forward to. Yeah, as far as I can tell, every single writing prophet... Except maybe Jonah. Except Jonah, that's the only exception, makes uh, some kind of reference somewhere. Mostly it's not just somewhere, it's, it's quite it's profound to a restored Israel sure. and a Messiah ruling the world from David's throne uh, in Jerusalem. Maybe they don't use the expression David's throne, but there's this restored Israel is a big deal, yeah. and how Israel is going to be head again over the nations. And is it fair to say that uh, since the Davidic covenant would have been part of their shared religious heritage, it's part of antecedent theology, mm-hmm. um, clearly that's how they would have understood the, the nature of the kingdom as, as involving a, a Davidic dynasty. Uh, rather than just some kind of, uh, you know, spiritual, ethereal uh, yeah. reign of, of the messianic figure. Well, we'll look at uh, Gabriel when he spoke to, uh, I think it was Mary in Luke 1, uh, very cl- around verses 32, 33, he makes a reference to mm-hmm. uh, Messiah's going to be born, and he's going to rule from David's throne, usher in the Davidic dynasty. And for her to interpret that as, well, it really doesn't mean what it says. That's somehow the rule of God in heaven over the church. I mean, that would have been laughed at by early Judaism. So let me uh, change pace just a little bit here and and talk about uh, that that second part of your book where where you argue against what you call kingdom now theology, Mm -hmm. or sometimes people call that inaugurated eschatology, or a a very popular buzzword these days is the already not yet view Mm -hmm. of the kingdom. Yes, there's a future form of the kingdom that is coming, but in some way, shape, or form, it's already here. What's wrong with that? Why, why should we be uh, suspicious when we hear people using that kind of terminology? Well, number one, it changes what the Hebrew Bible says. Uh, number two, there isn't anything that persuasive in the New Testament that would, to my mind, signal you that such a change has been made. And number three, once the church starts to view itself as some kind of expression of the kingdom in the sense that the kingdom's already here, it changes everything. It's a game changer. Virtually every area of theology is, is touched by this. That, For example, the present session of Christ at the Father's right hand, where he's functioning as high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which is a wonderful ministry, and we're the recipients of it now, that, that gets changed to the Davidic rule. And there's no clear New Testament passage that teaches that. And I, I don't know, I, the church, I think what starts to happen is our, we make home in the world. Uh, we're no longer viewed as pilgrims passing through, like James 1.1, 1, 1, 1 Peter 2.11, other passages indicate, Hebrews 11.13. But now it's all about us, and it's all about the here and now. And so that has a direct impact on our missiology. Yeah. So, so it becomes less a matter of spreading the gospel and, uh, and maybe more uh, of an emphasis on, on initiating social changes, mm-hmm. uh, infiltrating sectors of, of power and entertainment and, mm-hmm. and transforming the culture. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so you would not see a strong new, or any, really any New Testament precedent for us making that an integral component of our mission and our self-identity. Yeah, see what you're articulating there is the NAR... Uh, belief That's that right. we're to kind of penetrate, what do they call it, the five mountain mandate, mm-hmm. 
and all of those kinds of things. And I, th- I, I'm in favor, believe me, of us being salt and light in the culture. Sure. And I think to our uh, involvement in some of those things, we can kind of slow down the progress of evil. But they're not kingdom activity. Right. And what happens is if you see that as a manifestation of the kingdom, those things become not second tier but first tier. And when you change your emphasis, the emphasis is no longer reaching and teaching, evangelizing, and discipling. And uh, the whole mission of the church, as well as our presentation of the Great Commission, you know, mm-hmm. gets altered. Is it fair to say that we, we can find precedent for doing uh, mer- uh, let's say missions of mercy, building wells in Africa. Sure. We can find that in, in, in more broadly speaking, in maybe the image of God and man, in uh, maybe the, the the second greatest commandment that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But that's not the the heart of what the church is right. supposed to be doing in this dispensation. Right. I mean, we should use those things as a platform to preach the gospel. Sure. So, you know, James says, what, is it, what good does it do to say, uh, be warm and be filled? I mean, we demonstrate our veracity of the gospel through humanitarian work. But when humanitarian work ends at humanitarian work, that's like the habitat for humanity. You know, the Jimmy Carter, you know, mentality. Let's just go out and build houses. Well, what about the proclamation of the gospel? Right. In other words, what good is it going to do somebody to fill their stomach full of food for 24 hours if their soul goes into etern- an eternal hell? And, and we, get, we can get real confused about this real quick if we're not careful about what we're doing with the doctrine of the kingdom. This really resonates with me, and I think it should resonate with, with a lot of our listeners because our association of churches, the GARBC, uh, came out of that fundamentalist modernist controversy in mm-hmm. the early 20th century and and one of the, the 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 major impetuses for our decision to break off from the Northern Baptist Convention was this issue of a social gospel mm. and Walter Rauschenbusch and in mm. his steps and, and and you know that that whole movement that uh, really very closely mirrors what you're talking about yeah. that sadly we see kind of encroaching I, I think in certain sectors of the church and certain sectors of Christianity, and uh, that's just something that we should be very alert to and, uh, and 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 careful about. Well, you know, as the saying goes, those who don't learn from history are condemned to repeat it. And I sort of feel like uh, because we're not students of these things you're talking about in the twenties and other things like that, uh, that we're sort of recycling an ancient heresy, thinking that we're going to get a different result. You know, what's the definition of insanity? You do the same thing over and over again, thinking you're going to get something different. And Satan, you know, I don't think given our spiritual obtuseness really has to be that creative. He just keeps recycling things. Uh, You know, the New Age movement, you can find that in You Shall Be Like God in Genesis 3. I mean, that's that's New Age, but it's an old lie. And I kind of feel that way about this kingdom issue. Well, let me throw a couple of verses at you that our opponents will sometimes use to challenge dispensational premillennialism. And uh, sometimes these would be used by amillennialists or postmillennialists uh, to argue against the position that you're espousing that, that, that I would certainly share. 
And other times, uh, premillennialists, maybe those who are involved in progressive dispensationalism <laughs> or one of these other uh, systems that is open to inaugurated eschatology, they'll, they'll point to these and say, well, doesn't this disprove your view that the church is not the kingdom? Mm-hmm. So I've just got four of them jotted down here. There are mm-hmm. others, but these, it seems to me, are the, the, big, the big four that at least come up in conversations mm-hmm. that I have. At the end of the book of Acts, Acts 28, 23, when they had appointed a day for him, that is Paul, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers from morning till evening. He expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. Then you drop down a few verses. He lived mm-hmm. there two whole years at his own expense. He welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've heard it said, well, there you go. There's proof that the church and the gospel that we proclaim is continuous with the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, does that work or doesn't Yeah, it? well, what's what's interesting with those two verses, and I'm kind of peeking ahead, I'm just doing a sneak peek there, uh, with some of the other ones you're going to bring up, is the word kingdom is the Greek word basileia. Right. And what you discover is, in all of these passages, it's never defined. Hmm. It's, it's like using the word redemption. How in the world would I, as a New Testament writer, ever understand what redemption is? Well, I I have to go back and fill up the meaning of it from what God has already said. So in the case of redemption, you know, I have the Exodus narrative, and I can figure out basically what redemption is, the Passover lamb. And it works the exact same way with, with the kingdom. I mean, when a term is just left undefined, the mistake people are making is they're sort of rushing in and filling up that term with their own whatever meaning they think is appropriate, usually depending on their politics or their mm. own personal ecclesiology or their preset systematic theology. And I don't think that's the way to read the Bible. When the, when the doctrine of not just redemption but kingdom is so carefully defined. So I think the fact that those are not defined uh, demonstrates that we have to go to the Old Testament to figure out what that word means. And... Um, uh, beyond that, if you look at some of those passages, it talks about how Paul went around preaching and teaching the kingdom of God. Now, part of Christian teaching is the hope that's yet future. Sure. I don't think Paul, in teaching the hope that's yet future, is saying that the future is now. So I'm, I'm teaching a series in my church right now in the book of Revelation. That's part of Christian doctrine, but I'm not saying the book of Revelation is happening right now. So that's sort of how Alva J. McLean handled those two Acts sure. passages. I, I quote him in the book. I was satisfied with his answer. And the, the, the two rebuttals are, you define the word kingdom from how it's already been developed, not independently of it. And secondly, Paul went around teaching the kingdom. It's not a statement that the kingdom is here. Right. That's it's, right. It's, an, it's an inclusion of doctrine, which includes hope for the end. Uh, which would include the kingdom yet sure. yet coming. Do you think Acts 1 is a good place to go to speak to this also, when uh, when Jesus, of course, begins teaching the disciples mm-hmm. about the kingdom of God for 40 days, and at, at the end of that period, the disciples ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? To Israel, yeah. So it kind of seems like the, the way Luke is presenting this, uh, he, he certainly understands the disciples to be thinking that this is still a literal, earthly, geopolitical kingdom that's coming. 
Yeah. And it happens after 40 days when Jesus has already been teaching on this subject. Yeah. So, uh, and and if, if, if this is just a spiritual kingdom and everything has been canceled in terms of the earthly reign of Christ yet future, what an opportunity that would have been for Jesus sure. to say, you silly men, don't you understand? Have you been with me so long that you don't understand that there is no future earthly kingdom? The kingdom is now. Right. And yet he, he what's interesting, do he doesn't do that. He only corrects them on their timing. He doesn't correct them on the reality of a future kingdom. He just corrects them on their timing because they didn't fully understand the age of the church and things of that nature. They're in that transitional time period. You know, they had heard, of course, the upper room discourse, but Paul's letters, you know, hadn't been written yet and things like that. And so um, I think they're confused not on the the earthly kingdom that's coming. They're just confused that there's going to come an age of time that's not the Davidic reign of Christ, which is the church age. And that's really what he corrects them on there in Acts 1, uh, verse 3. But again, in the Acts 1 passage, just like the two in Acts 28, you notice that Basileia it's, it's is, not defined. is never defined. Yeah, and, and, and there we would probably say that the, the, the original audience there is going to have antecedent theology from the Old Testament, and they're going to understand this in a particular way. And that's that's what you bring out through your inductive study in, in part yeah, one of your book. particularly given the Hebraic Jewish audience that yeah. he's speaking to. I mean, we have to understand that you don't even have a Gentile conversion in the age of the church until Cornelius at Caesarea Maritima, sure. Acts 10 and 11. And so all, all of these early Christians were Jews, and they would have understood the kingdom based on Hebrew Bible. I, I think if you had gone up to them and told them it's really spiritual and not literal, I think they would, you would have been laughed right out of the building. Okay, so how about, uh, let's just tackle these other two real quickly. Colossians 1.13. Paul says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Mm-hmm. And and so some people say, aha, there you have it. Sure. We've been transferred into the kingdom. So uh, obviously that means that the kingdom is now, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Sure. Well, that's the argument. And this, this is one of the more popular ones that's used. But just to not to be redundant, but again, you'll notice the word kingdom yeah. is not uh, defined here. So you have to fill up the concept with what's already been revealed in the Old Testament. And the word that everybody misses in this whole thing is the word inheritance. Yeah, one verse earlier. (laughs) The inheritance of the saints. And we all know what an inheritance is. It's something that's legally yours, but you're not yet enjoying it. Sure. But it's still a legal reality. So I'm of the view that this is what you call a de jure... um, de facto statement. In other words, it's a legal statement, but it's not a statement uh, in point of fact. For example, Paul, around this same time period, because he wrote the the prison letters, uh, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Philemon, all within you know a very short time period of each other. Uh, in Philippians, he tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior. Yeah. So there's that component of future. There's, there's right a component there. of future, but no one thinks we're in heaven now. Right, right. And in a now, Ephesians and Colossians go together. They're a companion piece uh, pieces. Uh, Paul tells us that we uh, are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Not, now, not last I checked. Yeah, when, last time I looked <laughs> in the mirror, I don't really look that good. And right. so I'm obviously not there yet, but legally that's my place. And, you know, what's interesting is Paul's writing both those letters from Rome. 
And if you look at a map in Asia Minor, you see that Ephesus and Colossae are within 100 miles of each other. And so to me, in Ephesians, he's making a statement de jure, not de facto. Mm. And to me, it's completely logical to interpret Colossians, the companion piece, in that same way. And I have greater impetus to do that because of the word inheritance because there. the word yeah. inheritance, one verse, one verse prior. I, I think that's good. I, I, there, there are positional truths positional, about the believer yeah. right. that will be reified, they will be realized, but we're certainly not there yet. Right. Okay, one last one. Sure. Uh, Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6. And uh, the logic goes exactly the same way with this one as it does with the previous verse. Uh, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, if he's made us a kingdom, mm-hmm. then again, doesn't that imply some kind of an inaugurated eschatology? Well, one of the basic rules of Bible study is you can't uh, build a concept or a doctrine on a verse. You've got to look what all the similarly situated verses say. And when people leave Revelation, you know, I could see what they're saying if they just had Revelation 1. But when you go to Revelation 5... And you look at Revelation 5, verse 10, it uses the exact same language. Right. It says, You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. So that's the same language mm-hmm. as Revelation 1, 5, and 6. And notice what it says. They will reign. The reigning is future tense there. It's a future tense verb. And then it clarifies it further, and it says, upon the earth. So let's not just stop at Revelation 1. Let's look at Revelation 5, verse 10. Now, I was talking this way uh, on social media, which I don't recommend a lot of people do (laughs) because I think sometimes those things generate more heat than light. But he, and if I called his name out, everybody would know who he he is. But he was telling me I can't interpret the those two passages together like that this is uh, revelation one is clearly speaking of christ's reign over the church in revelation two and three and i'm thinking to myself have you read revelation two and three <laughs> lately i mean you've got seven churches yeah. five of which are in a totally apostate condition and then we know about laodicea Christ is outside the door of the church, knocking to get into the church. I take that as a restoration yeah. of fellowship. He's not reigning. In fact, in fact, the word Laodicea, uh, it's a compound word, laos, meaning people, and dikeo, meaning to rule. It means the people ruling is really hmm. what it means. So there's no kingdom in Revelation 2 and 3. He, he literally wants to, to vomit the Laodiceans yes, yes. out of his mouth. Yeah. One, one preacher rather famously uh, preached a sermon on that passage entitled, Christians Who Make Jesus Want to Puke. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. right. So I, I, I take your point. You compare these descriptions uh, with what we are expecting to see in a messianic kingdom, right. Christ ruling with a rod of iron, not exactly uh, not exactly the same thing, are they? It doesn't fit the seven churches. Um, now, two of the churches seem to be doing well because they're under sure. persecution. Five of the seven are not. But even if I didn't have that, I'd still have Revelation 5, verse 10, yeah. which puts the reigning in the future you know, upon the earth. You know, if people are into geometry... There's not enough what they call points of correspondence between what is revealed about the kingdom and the present age, Mm. not the least of which is the rod of iron. I mean, look at the condition of the church today. Look at how apostate it is. 
It's actually been that way for the last 2,000 years. It's a, it's a giant mess. Mm-hmm. That's not the kingdom. So anyway. Yeah, and not, not only Revelation 5, but also later Revelation 20, mm-hmm. where you have that reign and that rule really fleshed out. Yeah. And and, and so, uh, you know, if we're, if we're going to interpret Scripture contextually, sure. there's an immediate context, but there's also a book-level context. And, uh, Absolutely. It seems to me when well, you look well, at that. Well, well the devil is in the, is in the church. That's right. The that's synagogue right. of Satan and all mm-hmm. these... And then you're absolutely right. When you get to Revelation 20, you get the answer where Satan is actually in the abuso or the abyss, you know, incarcerated for a thousand years, and he's not roaming about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So I don't know. This is one of the things that frustrates me about systematic theologians is regardless of the topic, uh, you see this all the time. They grab some verse, it's almost like a snowball, <laughs> and they chuck it at their opponent. And, you know, the three rules of real estate are location, location, location. Three rules of Bible study are context, context, context. And, you know, the saying, a text without a without a context is a proof text. Sure, and that's sure. I think that's what's happening with their, how they're using some of these verses in the Kingdom Now debate. Hmm. And, and, and so the antidote to that would be to have a, a rigorously exegetical approach to Scripture and to, as you said earlier, pay heed to progressive revelation. So, so you're not just taking these later passages, plucking them out of their context, and filling them with meaning without making reference to this vast body of, of revelation and, and truth that's already been right. written down previously, right? right? Yes, absolutely. All right, well, I'll finish up with a, a so what question. Lots of Christians, including dispensational premillennialists who, in theory, would agree with, with both of us on this, will routinely use kingdom language when they're talking about the ministry of the gospel. Mm-hmm. You hear this all the time, you know, we're, we're building the kingdom, we're advancing the kingdom, we're doing kingdom work and using kingdom mm-hmm. resources and having a kingdom mindset or a kingdom mm-hmm. culture or, or what have you. Do you think we should, uh, we should try not to use those expressions? I, I don't think we should use them because I think words mean things. And whether you're signing an email, uh, I'm doing kingdom work, doing kingdom work, you're, you're unthinkingly communicating a theology. And we need to be precise on how we use words. I was looking at one conference uh, brochure and they called themselves Kingdom Builders. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't want to go to that conference. I'm not a kingdom builder. I'm a premillennialist. Jesus is going to set up his kingdom. And okay. so, you know, I could name some uh, prominent uh, dispensationalists, pretty well respected out there. He's got a book called, the, I think, The Kingdom Man. And then we have The Kingdom Woman. And, you know, if you really want to use kingdom in that way, I would use it the way Matthew 13 38 uses it that we are sons of the kingdom you know paul says if a son then an heir over in galatians 4 verse 7 so the best we're doing is we are winning souls to become inheritors of the coming kingdom Hmm. i I think it's hebrews 12 28 that says since we are receiving or, or inheriting a kingdom that cannot be shaken so if you want to, if, if the word kingdom is that important to you, then, you know, just throw in a few descriptors. I mean, yeah, we're advancing the kingdom in the sense that we're winning souls of the coming kingdom. But in no way, shape, or form are we establishing God's kingdom on the earth. How, how arrogant is it 
<laughs> to think that we can set up God's kingdom for the king. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's just insanity to even start to think that way. Yeah. And if people want to find out more about you and about your, your books and your ministry, where, uh, where should they go? Well, there's a, I have a website, andywoodsministries.org. Um, they can locate my books. Um, I, I'm a pastor of a local church. If they're interested in kind of tracking with my verse-by-verse teaching, you can just go to Sugarland, Sugarland two words, Bible Church, www.slbc.org. And to kind of keep up with the seminary that I'm heading is uh, www.chafer, C-H-A-F-E-R, not to be confused with Schaefer. That's right. <laughs> Francis Schaefer, C-H-A-F-E-R dot E-D-U. And if you go to those three locations, they'll, they'll have more of me than what they want. <laughs> All right. Or need. <laughs> and, and the book, uh, once again, is The Coming Kingdom, and that is published by Grace Gospel Press in 2016. Highly recommend that to all of you. Andy, thank you so very much for being with us today. Oh, great interview. What a joy. Thanks for having me. And thank you, listeners. Until next time, Soli Deo Gloria. Thank you for listening to the Baptist Bulletin Podcast. The regular Baptist network of ministries exists to make disciples through healthy local churches. If you like this podcast, subscribe to your podcast platform of choice. You can find out more about our ministries at garbc.org and follow Regular Baptist Ministries on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.